Amen. God bless you as you give. All right, so it's Labor Day weekend. How many of you, you, you celebrate by not working tomorrow? You have the day off from whatever your job is. Put your hand in the air. All right, higher. You should be real, real happy. You only get this once a year. Now, there is a magnificent story in the Bible that I don't know why, but very few people see it as a Labor Day story. Uh, but I see it that way, and every time I read the story, it makes me think of you. It makes me think of people who are not pastors, who are not in the clergy. They're not on the mission field. They're not evangelists. They're not missionaries, okay? Besides myself and Pastor Roger, are there any pastors here? That's what I thought. So, so why is it then that there's such little encouragement for you? As if pastoring and being an evangelist and being a missionary is the only worthwhile, you know, vocation. When 99% of the population does not do church work, why is it that we don't do anything to edify the people who don't do church work? We, we seem to put the whole thing of, well, if you're in the ministry, you're somehow, you're really close to God. You're really doing the Lord's work, brother or sister. And, you know, if you're working at McDonald's, then that's, well, that's, you know, you're just paying the bills with that. Uh, I wonder, does the Bible really sustain this idea? I mean, I worked in the, in the marketplace for 16 years and you know, Friday I was in the marketplace and Sunday I was working in the church. I mean, for me, there really wasn't a huge difference between marketplace and ministry. I used the same principles. I used the same ethics. I used the same, I got it all from the scripture. But I, I want to, to encourage you today, you who are not pastors, you who are not in the clergy, all right? This is a message for you. You say, well, I'm not working right now. I'm, uh, you know, I'm in between jobs or whatever. Listen, the, this message and really the message of Labor Day applies to everybody. Because how many of you know, even when you're not working, you're working? Some of you who are retired in this room, you, you got a whole system, you got a whole process as to how you live your life. I mean, you're, you're probably working for your spouse, you're working for your family, you're working for your lawn, you know, you're working for your neighbors. I mean, you, you've got a system, you've got a process, you've got a whole network of relationships that you're navigating through. You, you're doing something. You know, those of you who are in school, well, that's your job. Some of you, your job is looking for a job. I mean, you, we're all doing something. So the message of Labor Day really applies to, to everybody, whether you're in the workforce or you're not in the workforce. But I did a, a kind of a mental survey of people who they're, you know, what they do in this church. And I'm not, I probably haven't named everybody here and don't have everybody's seen down here, but I'm going to give you some things. You might find it really interesting. We do have a number of people who are here who, who are retired. Any of you retired, put your hand in the air. 
Yeah, some of you, 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 we have a retired nurse, we have uh, retired workers of all different kinds, we have a retired school teacher. Uh, one lady, she's not here today, put 40 some odd years of her life into, into nursing and into the whole hospital thing. Uh, we've got people who work in the hospital area at large, whether it be administrative or otherwise. Uh, we have a general contractor who, who, who's part of our church. We have engineers who are part of our church. We have a person who does aircraft maintenance. If you got a plane that you need fixing, I can introduce you to him at the end. Uh, we have a, a university professor, uh, nurses, people who work in banks, Again, uh, university administration, hospital administration, uh, people who work in high schools, elementary schools. We have an actuary who's part of our church. We have a number of people involved in information technology in a number of different spheres. We have people who are in transport. Uh, we have a pharmacist. We have a, a psychologist. We have a person who works in a federal penitentiary. Uh, we have an endocrinologist who is part of our church. We have someone in aviation. Uh, we have someone in collection. Uh, we have a baker, fireman, a real estate agent, uh, someone who runs a women's shelter, a taekwondo teacher, a project manager, uh, more engineers, all kinds, of, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of people. Um, and you have people who are studying, you have people who, again, it's your job to find a job, you're, you're in that kind of in-between zone. Wherever you're, you're at, I believe that this message applies to you. Uh, it, is, it is from the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, the story of Joseph. And uh, you see those colors on the screen, that's because Joseph was given a coat by his his father. Any of you know his father's name? Jacob. Wow, the kids got it. That's good. So Jacob was his father, and he, part of the story is that he gave him uh, this coat. Whatever age, stage, page of your life you're in, you will find some principles in this story of this man's life. It's a 4,000-year-old story that applies to you. A remarkable story from Genesis, and it's chapters 37 to 50. So today we're moving to the hotel. So it's an all-day service, so I just keep going through every chapter, and you're stuck with us for the next six hours right now. I'm going to do it really, really quickly. But I would encourage you to read this story. And even kids, there's a, there's a good, actually a really good uh, animated movie called Joseph, King of Dreams or something like that. Very, very well done, parents. You want to pick it up and watch it with your kids. It really tells the story quite beautifully. We meet this young man when he's 17 years old. He comes from a big family. How many brothers does he have? He has 11 brothers, big family back then, right? So he's got 11 brothers, and we're not told how many sisters, but we know he has sisters if we read the account. And we meet him when he's 17 years old. He is the second youngest in his family. His father had, had him in old age, and uh, he, he seems to have a particular love for this boy. His name is Joseph. He gives him this coat. And, of course, all of his brothers become jealous of him. He seems to be protected. He seems to be favored by his father, Jacob. 
And this jealousy that starts to, to boil over in the lives of his brothers turns into something very ugly, very even violent, right? You know the story of how Joseph, they, he has these dreams, and his dreams seem to have a meaning to them. And he has a couple of dreams that seem to depict him ruling over his brothers and his parents, as if he's, they're somehow going to bow down to him at some point in the future. And his brothers are enraged by this and enraged by how he's treated, especially by Jacob. And so very, very quickly, as you start looking at the story, you see that they are going to conspire to, at first, kill him. They're going to take him and they're going to throw him into a pit and they'll take his robe and they'll, they'll tear it up and they'll put the blood of an animal on it and they'll bring it back to Jacob and say, an animal got him, we're really sorry. And then they kind of change their mind and they say, well, we won't kill him, we'll just throw him into a pit. We'll do the same thing, we'll take his coat and we'll deceive the father into thinking that he is dead. And so right out of the gate, you see that Joseph is persecuted by his brothers and he is thrown into this pit with no water. And then they get the bright idea as they see some Midianites. Again, this is 4,000 years old, a Middle Eastern culture, okay? They see these Midianites coming and they say, you know what? Let's sell him as a slave to these Midianites. And that's precisely what they do. And then they go through with the plan of mimicking the boy's death. He's 17 years old. And his first job is as a Midianite slave. Very quickly, he has a short period of time in which he's a slave, and then he's brought to Egypt. And in Egypt, he, he changes jobs, if you will, and he becomes, he gets bought by the Egyptians, and he becomes a slave in the household of the captain of the guard. Uh, his name is, no, Potiphar. Yeah, good. His name is Potiphar. Some of you remember the story a little bit, uh, maybe from, you know, from, from old. Again, it's a very old story, 4,000 years old. So he ends up his second job, if you will. He's a slave in Potiphar's household, and that's how he lives. He's going to work for him. And you see right away, Joseph he, he has certain abilities, he has certain talents in administration and in leadership, and he, for lack of better words, gets a raise in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar realizes, man, since we've got Joseph in here, everything seems to be doing better. It's like my house, my whole household, my whole entourage, my, my life is prospering because of this, this Hebrew boy, this teenager, who I bought from the Midianites. And he decides, after watching Joseph and seeing his talent, his gifting, and his ability, he decides to put him in charge of the whole house. I mean, he's running the whole show because Potiphar recognizes his ability uh, and his talent. And then you see, as you, again, quickly doing a review of the story, you see that there is an individual who causes quite a lot of problems for Joseph at that point. Any, any of you remember who it was? Potiphar's wife, right? His nameless wife. We don't know her name. 
but she takes quite a shine to this probably 17, maybe 18-year-old boy. We're told in the book of Genesis he's, he's, he's good-looking, and, you know, she seems to be quite interested, and she doesn't want to just play checkers, if you know what I'm saying. So, so she attempts to, yeah, checkers. So, so she attempts to, uh, to rather bluntly seduce this young man. He's all by, imagine, he's all, he's not in, in, uh, in Hebrew culture. He's in the Egyptian culture. He's all alone. He's got this woman. Presumably, she may be, you know, somewhat good looking. We're not sure. It doesn't say. But she's really putting the moves on this young man. And he remarkably resists the temptation over and over again. And then finally, she, she gets rather, uh, you know, aggressive with him, and she grabs him, and he runs off, and she keeps his, his garment behind. This is not the colored garment, but it's just an Egyptian garment that he's wearing at that time. And she keeps it behind, and she's really, really upset, and so she's going to invent a story. And she's going to say, you know what, this Hebrew that you bought from the Midianites He's just come here to make sport of us. And he tried to assault me, and uh, so she concocts this story. And uh, so Potiphar comes home, presumably from a day's work. You know, he's captain of the guard, and she tells him the story, and he is boiling, raging mad. So what does he do? He catches Joseph, and he throws Joseph where? Good, good job. He throws Joseph in his jail. He's, he's the captain of the guard, so he has his own jail, if you will, and he throws Joseph in there. So, you, again, you quickly read through the story, and you see, lo and behold, Joseph, it's his new job. He's a prisoner, right? So, so lo and behold, you see that Joseph, because of his abilities and his talents and his giftings, the prison warden looks at him and says, you know what? There's something about you. you, you I want to put you in charge of my part of the prison. So he, he puts him in charge. And so he's kind of number two to the warden. He's got himself a new a raise. Even though he's working in jail, he's got himself a raise. And so he's like running the show under the warden's authority. And he runs into two interesting characters. Do you remember who they are? Not bad. The cupbearer and the baker who worked for the big boss, the guy at the top of the chain, Pharaoh himself. So Pharaoh, who's, who's the, you know, the king, if you will, over Egypt at the time and against 4,000-year-old culture. So he is really upset with his cupbearer, which is a person who would drink his cup before he would, just in case there was poison in it, all right? Not the preferred job, but that was his job. And so the cupbearer, for some reason, upset Pharaoh. And so did the baker. I don't know if he burnt the toast. I don't know if the Tim Hortons was sour or whatever. But the cupbearer and the baker make Pharaoh very, very upset. And so he throws them in jail. And guess which jail he chooses? The one that Joseph is number two under the warden. And Joseph is given charge over these two prisoners, the cupbearer and the baker. You following with me? Okay. So what happens is these, these guys have dreams. 
And their dreams are really, really unusual, really, really strange. And so Joseph, again, this guy with the dreams, he's able to interpret the dreams. Apparently, they have a meaning to them, and they have a prophetic meaning to them. God is showing them what will happen to them three days after the dream. And for the cupbearer, the news is good. In three days, you're going to get out. Pharaoh is going to uplift you and bring you back into his place, and you're going to get out. But for the baker, the news is bad. In three days, you're going to, you're going to lose your life. And sure enough, this is exactly what happens. And you see it in Genesis chapter 40, and you see that one of them lives and one of them dies. And Joseph tells that cupbearer, he says, when you get out, you remember me. You remember me to Pharaoh. Don't forget me. And of course, the cupbearer forgets all about him. And then you see some time passes. Two full years, we're told. We're in Genesis 41, moving right along. And we see that Pharaoh, the, the top guy, the man in charge, he has a series of very, very intense, very graphic dreams himself. And they're really, really bothersome, really, really disturbing. And he calls his whole entourage of, you know, Egyptian magicians and whatnot and, and astrologers and who knows what type of religious view they have. And they're, they're trying to interpret these dreams and they can't. And so the cupbearer who got his job back, you know, he, he says, you know something, I remember this guy in prison where you sent me, by the way. I remember this guy in the prison, and this guy, he was able to interpret dreams. And why don't you bring him to yourself, and he may be able to interpret the dream because he got it right for me, and unfortunately, he got it right for the baker as well. And so the Pharaoh brings him out of prison and brings Joseph to himself, and he explains the dreams to Joseph, and Joseph says, I cannot interpret them, but God can and God will give me the interpretation, and sure enough, he does. And he says to Pharaoh, let me explain to you what your dreams mean. There is going to be seven years of plentiful harvest in this land. You will have so much harvest, you won't even believe it. But after that, you're going to have seven years of tremendous, tremendous famine. It's going to be so bad, you won't even believe how bad it will be. And so you need to come up with a plan, Pharaoh, because people are going to die if you do not get ahead of this problem. And if you are not proactive in this problem, you are going to have a big problem. And so Pharaoh, you know, somewhat smart fellow, I suppose that he is, he says, well, I'll give you the job. And so this is Joseph's next job. He says, you fix the problem. You find a way to save people's lives if what you say is going to come true. And Joseph comes up with, effectively, the first insurance plan that you can see in the Bible. <laughs> he says, take 20%. Take a fifth of what comes in in the harvest in the first seven years. Take 20% of it and put it away. It's going to be insurance and people will be able to buy grain and live during the seven years of famine that will come. And this pleases uh, the, the Pharaoh so much. And he sees that Joseph is this incredible talent, smart guy. He puts him in charge. He says, you know what? I'm putting you in charge of the whole thing. You're going to be number two 
Number two in Egypt, I make you the governor. He gives him a different name. He gives him a bride. Uh, he sets him up in power. He puts him in. He's like, this guy is number two, a Hebrew in Egyptian culture. He's number two in Egypt, and his job is, guess what? Save the world. And so he's 30 years old, we're told. We met him when he was 17. He's 30 years old when he enters into the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he's number two in the land. He has two sons. He's given an Egyptian bride, and he has two sons. Uh, the names are Manashe, uh, which means um, uh, uh, God has made me forget the, the trouble, presumably, that he had in his father's household. And his second son is Ephraim which uh, God has made me fruitful in the land of suffering. So he has two boys, and the seven years of plenty start to come to an end, and then the seven years of famine come exactly as Joseph has, had predicted. Are you still with me? It's an amazing story. I love reading this story. So, he, you know, he's got job after job after job, and he seems to do well in any job that he has. And so you've got the famine, and it is beginning to spread, and it goes further than Egypt. It goes to the bordering lands. It goes to the land where Jacob and his 11 other sons live. And they, of course, you know, it's an amazing thing when you're starving You'll do anything to eat. And so Genesis chapter 42, Jacob learns and he says, well, boys, what are you doing looking at one another? Get over there to Egypt. They have grain there and go and buy that grain so we will live and not die. He thinks that Joseph, uh, his second youngest son, is already gone. And he said, I don't want to lose more of these boys. Get over there and get the grain. And so they head to the land of Egypt, and uh, he holds back his youngest son, Benjamin, who's the second youngest. Joseph was, uh, uh, Joseph was the second youngest. Benjamin is his youngest son. And he holds back Benjamin. He says, I don't want to give up Benjamin because if, if, I don't want to lose him. I've already lost Joseph. I don't want to lose Benjamin. So he keeps Benjamin behind. He sends his other sons over to get the grain. And guess who they run into? 13 years after they threw him into a pit, they run into Joseph. Now, they don't recognize Joseph at all, but he recognizes them right away. He sees who they are, and he plays a little bit of a game with them, if you will. He, he's quite tactful, uh, quite wise in how he, he handles them. And um, he says to them, you know what? I think you're spies, I don't think you're telling me the truth. I think you're spies. I don't think you're here to buy grain. I think you're here to cause me trouble. And they say, no, 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 we're not spies. We're not spies. And they start to sort of spew out their whole life story. And they even talk about Joseph and say, well, he's no more. But, you know, there's one son at home. The youngest son is still at home. And our father sent us here to get grain, blah, 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 blah. And they cop up the goods. And so Joseph says, hmm, let me see if your story is true or false. I think you're lying. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to leave one of your, one of your, uh, one brother is going to stay here as collateral. And you are going to bring that youngest son to me. I want to see his face to prove that you are not lying. <laughs> so Simeon is held in Egypt as collateral, if you will, uh, because Joseph wants to see if Benjamin is going to come. 
He's got the whole thing planned. He's working. He's tactfully handling his, his brothers. And so they acquiesce. But little do they know that on their way back to, uh, to the land where Jacob is, they've got their grain. Not only do they have grain, Joseph had refilled their bags with all of the silver that they used to buy the grain. He's very, very kind to his cruel brothers. And it's kind of a gesture of grace. He puts all this grain in their bags and he puts all this silver in their bags and they're shocked when they find the silver and they say, oh no, God is punishing us for what we did to Joseph 13 years ago. This is a bad thing. If this, if this person who they don't know it's Joseph, if, if this governor put this money in our bag, he's testing us. This is a bad, bad thing. God is punishing us. It's a bad problem that we have now. And so they go back to, to Jacob and they, and, and, and they tell Jacob the story about Simeon being held as collateral. And Jacob says, no, 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 no. I'm never going to send Benjamin there. I don't want to lose Benjamin. He's my youngest son. I've already lost Joseph. I don't want to lose Benjamin. No, 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 he's not going. And they try to beg him a little bit, and he says no. But then they start getting hungry. And the, you know when people get hungry. And so they say, we're going to do it, and we're going to bring Benjamin there. And uh, it's Judah who says, I can handle this. I promise you I will, I will get uh, your youngest son back. I will get Simeon back. You can hold me accountable, Dad. It's all going to work out. Leave it to me. And so they make a second journey to Egypt, and this time they've got Benjamin and Joseph. He's got it all under control. He's working the whole thing, and he's he's playing, if you will, with his brothers. And you know he sees that that Benjamin is there, and he gives him he gives him grain. He gives him silver again. But this time, on their way back. He plants something in Benjamin's bag. So when they're on their way back to the land of Jacob again, he plants a silver spoon in, Jacob, in Benjamin's bag, the youngest son. And what he's going to do is he's going to frame the youngest son and set up this whole confrontation again with him and his brothers. And so, long story short, you know, Benjamin is discovered with this, with this very important article in his sack as if he's stolen it, and it's like, oh boy, we're going to get in huge trouble. Benjamin's going to lose his life. It's going to be problems, problems, problems. And then they come back, and they're in Joseph's presence, and Joseph, he can't stand it anymore. And he makes himself known to his brother's and he declares who he is, and he reveals his identity to his brothers, and there's this kind of glorious reconciliation that happens between him and his brothers after he had played these games. Uh, and long story short, uh, Jacob and his whole entourage, you're talking some 70 plus people, end up moving to the land of Egypt, settling there, being able to eat, being able to grow. And eventually, the, his, his children and the, the Israelites would, would grow so big that eventually, you see in the book of Exodus, there's leadership in Egypt that is not so favorable to them and you enter into the book of Exodus and the story of Moses and so on. But all has its roots in the story of Joseph and again this, this elaborate thing with his brothers. 
You say, what's this got to do with Labor Day? You told the story, very, very entertaining, but what does it have to do with my life and Labor Day? Let me give you three, three principles uh, 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 this morning. Number one, listen to me. Those of you particularly who you're, you may be right in the workforce right now. Uh, number one, prioritize integrity over ease, please. Prioritize integrity over ease. You see uh, Joseph in Genesis chapter 39, uh, just giving you a couple of scriptures and, uh, and verse 2. Uh, he is there in the house. Potiphar is his boss. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And you see this phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. doesn't matter what job he's in. I mean, this guy goes from being slave number one to the Midianites, to slave number two, the Egyptians, to slave number three, uh, Potiphar's household. Now he's in charge of Potiphar's household. Oh, no, now he's in between jobs. He's thrown in prison. Oh, no, now he's got a raise in prison. He's a prison number two guy. And now he's out of prison. He's interpreting dreams. And now he's number two in Egypt. Well, whatever job he has, he favors integrity over ease. So this statement, the Lord was with Joseph, um, it's a statement about his integrity, you see. We know that God is everywhere all the time, but this statement, the Lord was with Joseph, there was a personal connection that Joseph had with God, and he favored that over everything else. Uh, the, the woman came to him. He said, no. I mean, he had chance after chance after chance to compromise his integrity. He's in a foreign land. There's no Hebrews around. He's isolated. He's alone. He's subject to temptation. And he does not, does, there's not one record of Joseph sinning. There's nothing that says that he sinned. Some say, well, he shouldn't have bragged about his dreams to his brothers. Well, you know, that's a matter of opinion. Uh, but but the, the man held on to his integrity instead of seeking a life of ease in job after job after job. Here's what, here's what I see today, particularly with Christians who are in the marketplace or in the workforce. Okay, you are working with non-Christian people. Yes, it's myself and Pastor Roger, we have, we have a blessing and a curse at the same time. It's a real blessing to run the church. It's a blessing to train and equip people for the work of the ministry. That's what we do in various shapes and sizes. But that's what we do all day. <laughs> that's what we think about all day, all the time. That's what we think about. It's, we've got to, we're, it's, it, we're running the church, and that's a real blessing, but in some ways it's a curse. You know why? Because we have to intentionally go out there to be around non-Christian people. We have to make efforts to carve into our lives. No, I need to be with people who are far from God, not just people who are church people, but I need to be with lost people and people who are far from God. Guess what? You have that every day. You should be happy. You have the blessing of being able to fulfill the great commission. It's built into your life. We have to try and build it into our lives, those of us who work in the clergy. So sometimes Christians, I find they say, oh, you know, I work amongst non-Christian people. 
you know, they, 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 they talk dirty and they live dirty and they're dirty and, they, you know, they're ungodly and they do ungodly things. And, you know, there's so many non-Christians where I work. Oh, my goodness. You have the opportunity to be light in a dark place. God has planted you there to minister and to be salt and light in a dark world. He has you exactly where he wants you to be. You say, well, you mean I'm stuck in this place forever? I can't change jobs? Well, of course you can change jobs. I mean, there are people who change jobs for very, very legitimate reasons. Sometimes, you know, you need to. But sometimes it's because I just want Christians everywhere. You work in a non-Christian world. Look at it as an opportunity, not an obstacle. Your light can shine brighter in dark places, it is built into your everyday life. What a blessing to be in a non-Christian world. And this is the way that Joseph was. He prioritized his integrity over ease of job. I mean, back then, he didn't have the luxury to look for another job. But wherever he was, the prison to the palace, he prioritized his integrity over ease. Number two. Use your gifts outside the church context. Why is it that we only elevate the gifts that God has given to people in the church context? Why do we only do it then? Why, it, why is it that we don't realize that when you are outside of the church context, outside of the, 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 the family of relationships that you have here, you have the same opportunity to use your God-given gifts and talents and abilities out there in a non-Christian world. You see that Joseph, he is not in the clergy. He's not a priest. He's not part of the priesthood. In fact, he's in a totally alien culture to him. He's in the Egyptian culture. And even when he's in his family, before he leaves, you see that he uses his gifts there. I mean, he's got these dreams. He's able to interpret these dreams, much to the chagrin of his brothers and his parents. But he's, he's being who he is. When he's in Potiphar's house... What does he do? He's got these talents and gifts of administration and leadership, and he uses them there. That's where he is. That's where God put him, and that's where he uses them. When he's in the prison, he uses them. He uses his gifts uh, that, that are more of a natural bent, administration, leadership. But he's got this kind of supernatural ability to tell people what, what dreams meant. And, you know, there were some people who were dreaming some things that were quite significant. He's got that ability. He ends up in the palace and the, the top guy, the top guy is having dreams. And God is able to work through Joseph, again, not part of the priesthood, not, not in, a, in a religious culture. And he is able to use his gift. Use your gifts outside, not just inside of the church context. That's why God gave you them because you, again, can fulfill the Great Commission to reach the one who is far from God right where you are every day, regardless of what you're doing. And number three, keep a soft heart toward people. Sometimes I find that the longer that people work, the harder their heart gets. And it's sort of, well, it's me, myself, and I. You got to climb the ladder. I got to get better, do better, but forget about 
the, the other people around because it's super, super competitive where I work. And, you know, I got to think about myself. It doesn't matter how I treat other people. I have to look out for me. I have to plan me and my future and my this and my that and forget about serving other people, forget about loving other people. And our hearts sometimes get hard and crusty the longer we, we're working and they get jaded and they get too, too tough. Look at Joseph. I mean, my goodness, he is so badly treated by everybody, and yet he has this soft heart towards people. It's remarkable. I mean, even toward the Egyptians. He comes up with a plan to save the Egyptians. Why? They were so mean to him. I mean, he's a slave. He's in prison. Why doesn't he say, forget this, this godless pagan culture. I hope they all die. I hope I'm the only one left. I'm the only Hebrew here. I'm the only God-fearing person here. Look at these people, these pagan people in these pagan ways. Uh, let them all die because they're so foolish. No, he has such a soft heart. He engineers a plan that, that lasts for 14 straight years. My goodness, he is so tender toward the people who mistreat him. And look at how he treats his brothers, even though he's playing a little bit of a game with them. He shows such grace and such kindness, putting the silver in their bag and giving them all of this extra stuff that they didn't deserve, all of this grace. He keeps a soft heart toward people. He names his children, his two children. He gives them names that speak of his emotional connection to what, what happened to him in his personal experience. And he keeps a soft heart toward his father. And you see how they're reconciled and ultimately when his father passes away and then ultimately in chapter 50 when Joseph passes away. Wow, what a soft heart. It's the opposite of what you would expect. Uh, but if you follow those, those three ideas, those three principles, prioritize integrity over ease, use your gifts outside the church context, outside of it, and keep a soft heart toward God. I guarantee you, it's 4,000-year-old stuff, I guarantee you, you will see the hand of God be with you regardless of what you are doing. He has put you there for a reason. It is not by some accident that you are where you are difficult or easy uh, luciana if you would come to the to the piano and just play something softly on the keys we're going to finish our time together today and in this place uh, and with one another it's great to have pastor roger and janice here because we're going to share communion together uh, just for a few moments as we finish. So it's really, really simple in our church. We're portable. So this is portable communion, okay? For those of you who are brand new with us, it's just juice and bread, okay? But it's in a little, little compartment like this. So everybody who wants to participate today, I want to make sure that you have an emblem. Parents, if you're with your kids and you want them to participate, that's your choice. I leave that with you. But if you haven't been served an emblem yet and you want to participate today, can you just raise your hand and surely if you can go and circulate that that would be great you know the story of joseph many bible teachers they look at it and they say my my it has certain pictures in it that look a little bit like jesus and theologians have a term for this they call it type and anti-type you know and they say joseph is a type of jesus and jesus is the anti-type so you see a man who is persecuted by his own brothers 
you see Jesus, who is persecuted by his own brothers. Uh, he came into his own, and his own did not believe him. But to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. You see Joseph behave with grace to people who don't deserve it. You see Jesus behave with grace toward a world that doesn't deserve it. You see Joseph effectively save the world of the day. You see Jesus dies on a cross to save us from our sin. And so we call this, again, a type and an anti-type. Do you know how much greater Jesus is than Joseph? Can you just imagine for one moment how Jesus came into the world and the scripture says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. Uh, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, uh, but he took up our infirmities and, and carried our sorrows and by his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray and yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isn't that amazing? I mean, Jesus did that and he did that once and for all for us on that cross, regardless of your background today, regardless of your job today, regardless of what you are doing in life, Jesus went to that cross for you, for you and for me as individual people and for this, this whole world. And that's what we acknowledge in communion. We remember what Jesus did for us on the cross and we remember and remind ourselves over and over again that that's something that never changes that nobody can take away nobody can alter it nobody can take it back and we do this until he comes it's such a healthy healthy practice and such a healthy habit because life comes and it just it just knocks us off center and we need to remind ourselves, hey, no matter what I'm going through, God, I know that Jesus came. I know that Jesus died. I know that he rose from the dead. I know that he is coming again. If you would just peel back the top layer of this emblem here, it's really thin. And that is going to uh, expose just a little wafer. And the Bible teaches that this is a picture, a representation, a symbol of the body of Jesus that hung on that cross. But it also pictures and symbolizes the church, the body of Christ, the people of God worldwide. And we're to acknowledge one another even as we acknowledge what Jesus did for us on the cross. Would you partake of the wafer with me? And then if you'll pull back the second layer there, it's a little thicker. You're going to see it's just some juice. It's only grape juice. We don't use wine in our church, okay? I had a person joke with me this week when I was volunteering at the mission. And he said, do you drink wine? I said, no, it's just juice that we use. Oh, he was surprised at that. But it represents something, again, something very, very powerful. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. It's not just that God says, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. No, there had to be a payment for sin. And it had to be death for sin. It had to be bloodshed for sin. 
the most extreme penalty by the most extremely holy God. And that's what this represents, the, the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us. Again, he took up our infirmities and by his stripes we are healed. Would you take the juice with me? Please stand. We're just going to close the service in prayer. It's been a beautiful time together. Wow, you're so, I mean, you know this story more than you think you know it. I, I pray that it finds a relevance for you in your day-to-day -day lives. God, we praise you today. We thank you today. We worship you today. For, Lord, uh, you love us with, a, with an everlasting love. And, 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 God, we're so privileged to be people who are part of the work that you're doing. And God, so, um, uh, so humbled, God, that we can take your hand and that we can, we can walk with you and that we don't have to go through life uh, by ourselves. We don't have to go through life under the, under the power and the penalty of sin. And just as we close today, I wonder, uh, because this is a, is a good attendance today, I wonder if there's any of you who are here today, maybe it's your first time here, you're visiting, and you say, you know what, you speak of God uh, in such a way that you know him. And um, I wish I had that uh, because I feel, the, I feel the penalty of sin on my life. I feel the power of sin stops me. Um, I, I wish that I knew God the way that you say uh, you do. Can I just say to you, even as my eyes are closed this morning, uh, what Jesus did on the cross, he did for you to forgive you of your sin. It's that simple. He's the, the son of God who atoned for sin once and for all on that cross. And if you will trust him and if you will ask him for mercy, he will come into your life and begin a process of transformation. Uh, from the inside out that will affect the rest of your life. But you have to accept it as a gift, my friends. Uh, I wonder if there's any of you and you say, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me to that end? Can you slip up your hand just so that I can see you before we finish today? Any of you who you say, I, I really need prayer along those lines. Yes, thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Yes, thank you for your honesty. Yeah. I'm just going to pray a really simple prayer. You can pray it after me or, or in your own mind, in your own heart. Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And I receive you into my life as my God and my Savior. I don't know what it all means, but God, I ask you for mercy today that I would become a child of God. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, come and see me after. I saw who you were anyway, but come and see me. I'd love to encourage you further. God bless you today. My goodness, it's so exciting. This is the last moment. You should take a little selfie of yourself. You know, in front of the Cineplex, there's a small team that is going to help us to take the tabernacle over to the promised land. Okay, we're headed to the hotel 500 meters yonder from here. We will see you next week, September the 9th, 10.30 in the morning, all plus.